ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome to the LRB Podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Monday the 6th of April. At the weekend, I spoke with Rupert Beale, a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute and LRB contributor who wrote about COVID-19 in the paper a month ago. We talked about testing for the virus, about the work he's doing on that at the Crick, also about antibody testing, drug therapies and vaccines, but mostly about testing for the virus itself. Hello Rupert, and thank you very much for joining us again. It's the afternoon of Saturday the 4th of April, that's just over three weeks since we last spoke, and a month since you wrote your piece in the LRP. Uh, Michael Gove has just given today's government briefing, so um, some numbers then first of all. They say that 183,190 people have been tested, 41,903 have tested positive, just over 15,000 people have been admitted to hospital with COVID-19 symptoms, 708 is the most recent daily death total, the highest so far, and there have been 4,313 total deaths, Um, and all those numbers seem are only going to rise. And do they give an accurate picture of the crisis? Um, they do. There is one sort of set of numbers which, in a way, is the most heartening, and it matches with what um, colleagues are telling me on the front line, which is that the number of admissions to hospital uh, in London, where, of course, the epicentre of the um, uh, pandemic in the UK you know, you know, is, the numbers of admissions are actually plateauing at the moment. So that suggests that um, the measures that were being put in place two weeks ago, um, you know, did have some effect. So, and, and the NHS front line at the moment um, is not breached. You know, the capacity for ventilation is is there. There's at the moment enough spare capacity um, for ventilation for um, the projected rise in cases that we're seeing. And I think if you're looking for positive news, um, in amongst some very grim statistics, then that that is the positive news. That I, do, I don't think the NHS frontline at the moment is in danger of breaking. And is that true for the rest of the country? Because the number the number of admissions has gone up significantly in 
Yorkshire and other places, it, hasn't it? It has, and I think that the relative delay in the spread of um, this from um, London to other parts of the country, well, it's not quite an accurate way of describing it, but uh, the, the sort of relative lag in terms of the number of cases coming through to um, hospitals in different parts of the country has allowed those hospitals more time to prepare. And I think that's been crucial because uh, in the initial uh, stages, um, you know, people were very unclear about the best way of, um, you know, doing simple things like segregating patients. People were very unclear about what a positive test result really meant versus a negative test result. And so we, you know, we saw cases where someone would be tested for the disease, tested for COVID-19, the test would be negative, and that they were immediately put then into a clean, so-called clean area of the hospital. And in fact, um, we know now that, especially depending on the kind of sample you take and the time course of that sort of sampling, um, that uh, that you can have um, false negatives. And so those patients were then subsequently testing positive and hadn't been being looked after with the correct level of uh, personal protective equipment by frontline NHS staff. So, so I think that, that um, having your sort of procedures in place and making sure that nothing, um, you know, happens, which would be the detriment of your staff and patients um, is something that we're beginning to get right now in the NHS. And is that because there are fewer false negatives that the tests have been changed or that people know that a negative, there is the possibility of false negatives, so you have to treat anyone with symptoms as potentially infectious. Uh, absolutely. As, as this condition has become much more familiar to people and people have realised that occasionally it presents in strange ways. Um, uh, for example, uh, some patients even seem to present with abdominal pain and have come through to, therefore to surgical teams who would normally deal with that. But it's recognised that Abdominal pain can be a symptom, sometimes not often, but sometimes of COVID-19. And so people have become very alert to this kind of um, possibility now. Um, and of course, that knowledge has been pushed out, you know, straight away to hospitals where they're seeing fewer cases. So my expectation is that in those hospitals where they are at the moment seeing fewer cases, so for example, where I live in Cambridge, um, there are many fewer cases um, than there are in, in, in London. You know, the procedures are in place there. Um, to make sure that these kinds of, um, you know, problems that you really, really don't want to happen, don't happen. Um, and, and I think that will be crucial um, in the response, the sort of frontline NHS response to the to the pandemic. I think a huge weakness at the moment, and my biggest worry actually, is that because we're not testing our frontline NHS staff, we don't know how many of them are infected, and we don't know if they're potentially transmitting this virus to colleagues and patients. That's my personal biggest worry at the moment. Really, we should be, you know, testing more or less the entire frontline workforce uh, regular intervals if they're likely to be exposed to to the virus. At the moment, there's nothing like the capacity to do that in, within the system. Okay, so what needs to be done to create that capacity? Well, this is a huge challenge right now, and this is something that um, I'm I'm now sort of very directly involved with. It's something I did not anticipate, you know, three weeks ago. So um, there was a certain amount of testing capability that could just simply be, um, you know, run a little bit faster, a little bit more of it in, in the public health laboratories around the country and the NHS laboratories that Public Health England rolled out the testing um, capability to. 
The difficulty comes that, of course, um, we're in a situation where literally every country in the world wants to do as many tests as possible. And therefore, they all want the same uh, reagents. They want the same chemicals um, to perform these tests. And most of the tests that we do in the UK, in fact, the great majority of them, are based on uh, you know commercial platforms, which under normal circumstances is fine. You know your your reagents are all made up in a factory in Germany or wherever it is, and then they ship them over to you, and then you get them as more or less you know solution A, solution B, solution C, and you do A, B, and C, and you get a great result. And of course, that's they're all you know compatible within their own systems. The difficulty, of course, is that um, people had not anticipated that there would be this enormous global demand for all of these all at the same time. And so the initial um, ambition by the government, uh, which was stated they wanted eventually to run 250,000 tests a day, and they were going to do that in sort of large centralised um, uh, testing centres, for example, in Milton Keynes. You know, they impounded, as it were, they took for the time being, um, uh, you know, platforms to do this from research institutes and so on. Um, but I think because of the lack um, globally of these proprietary um, reagents and the inability of these sort of companies to produce not just tenfold more, but, you know, a thousand or more, more than that fold, more than they're used to, that's meant that the testing um, capability hasn't got up to where it really needs to be. So then you have to think around the problem. Um, what we decided to do in the CRIG because um, we're, we're doing uh, testing now for, for uh, in partnership with our local NHS trusts, uh, is to try and base our testing on um, the most sort of, as it were, generic chemistry possible, so that we really didn't have to rely on, you know, external suppliers of, um, you know, um, reagents that only they in principle can produce. Now, most of these... Um, reagents and chemicals are pretty simple to make. Um, so, you know, um, simple stuff if you've got the right chemicals. So I found myself over the past sort of couple of weeks, um, you know, uh, being sort of part of this um, effort in the crick. And one of my jobs is to work out the best way of inactivating the virus and, there, and also preserving the uh, genome of the virus, the RNA bit of the genome that you need to, to run the test. Um, and of course, you know, I've run a lot of, um, you know, PCR reactions, you know, these kinds of uh, tests in the past at very small scales. How you scale this up massively? Well, you need sort of advice from people who do this professionally and who've got sort of the expertise to tell you, you know, what the best sort of way of doing it might be. And actually, we've got some fantastic advice from Public Health Wales, who are really helpful about a good way of inactivating the virus uh, that would be safe because um, uh, of course you the, the absolute last thing you want to do is infect anyone who's 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 um, carrying out these tests that would be a disaster and then of course we went to observe our local NHS testing labs and they're getting the samples in multiple different formats so then the next challenge is to make sure that no matter what format you get the the swab in because people are running out of swabs they're running out of proprietary swabs they're making their own swabs I mean the swabs are basically a glorified cotton wool bud um, but, you know, some of them need to be in special viral transport media and others can be dry and so on. So, again, great advice from Public Health Wales about a process that you could essentially put all of these different swab formats into one inactivation um, set of chemicals. So we made that up and, you know, basically it started to work first time, which was fantastic. Uh, 
And then there's been huge effort from a whole bunch of people um, uh, who, who do things like program robots, um, who uh, run the um, sequencing facility in our in our institute. They've repurposed their robots for this. We sorted out lots of barcoding issues, so we tracked patient samples, and the IT people helped helped a lot with this. Um, and then we have a, a high throughput screening facility, which usually is looking for you know. Um, for example, you know, new chemical inhibitors of a pathway for sort of scientific research. And they basically repurpose what they're doing to look at the uh, quantitative PCRs. And we did this all in partnership with our local um, UCLH um, testing laboratories and the virologists there. So it's been an enormous effort by a huge number of people. And it looks to be working pretty well. So at least for small numbers of samples, we can certainly do this. Uh, we ourselves and I are trying to ramp this up um, it's a cliche to talk about ramping things up, but I apologize. Okay. I'm going to start, I'm going to say ramp it up, ramp it up at all times. It's, it's, it's no um, longer a cliche. It's just the word. It's just yeah. it's just what people say. So what we know we can do this at small scale. Um, our, our big challenge is: can we do this at uh, a large scale? Can we do this ultra reliably? And can we do this for the next you know three four months? And presumably, if you could do this, and the whole point of it is that it's to do it as generically as possible. If you're able to do it at the correct, then other labs will be able to do it as well. And then, so that's the idea. And, and we're going to share all our um, operating procedures and everything like that with anybody that wants them. Um, and uh, you know, each institute that's doing this will have to um, work out the best way of doing this for its for itself. But the key for us was working very closely with the local. Uh, NHS um, laboratories to make sure that we were, you know, um, giving comparable results to them, that we weren't having false positives and false negatives. Because, I mean, you get false negatives principally because of a sampling uh, error. Uh, you know, the swab doesn't go far enough or something like that. But we, of course, also need to make sure we don't have an additional set of false negatives or false positives introduced by, as it were, the molecular biology and I think we're, we we can be pretty confident the molecular biology is working very, very well. Um, and so then the next challenge that we're going to start working on is whether or not we can improve sample collection. And we've got ideas about that as well. And um, hopefully we'll be able to, again, work with NHS trusts locally um, to to implement, you know, better sample collection and so on. So we're basically going to do whatever we can do to make sure that we're delivering the tests as accurately as possible. And then the other crucial, crucial thing is speed. Um, so if, if you're doing a test in Taunton and you have to send it to Milton Keynes for testing, that's obviously an intrinsic weakness in the process. So I think the government's new strategy for testing, which seems to me much more um, plausible, and I, I really hope and, uh, you know, I really hope we can, we can manage to help deliver this, is to, as it were, distribute the testing capability around more centres so these can be done more locally and not to have a sort of monopoly-type system where you're only using this kind of chemical, only using that kind of chemical, because what happens if you run out of that chemical? Well, phew, now you're in big, big trouble. Whereas if – and that could take out, you know, 50 or, 50 or in principle 100% of your testing capability if, if something went badly wrong. But if everything's, as it were, distributed – then, okay, maybe our institute's messed up and we can't do any tests for a couple of days, but at least the one, you know, 50 miles away can. So testing is really the only, mass testing is the only solution to this? Uh, I think that, well, it, it's not the only solution. I mean, there are other things you can do. You can have very careful barrier nursing techniques. 
That, of course, relies on having large amounts of personal protective equipment, PPE. Of course, there's also problems in the supply chain there. Um, so I think it's a question of both and, not either or. You know, a belt and braces type approach to uh, patient safety and staff safety. And do you do you have enough PPE? Well, we we need almost no PPE because the process we've designed is unbelievably safe. Um, and again, this is from Public Health Wales. So what, what we do is we do all our viral inactivation in the Category 3 labs. So that's one step away from Category 4, which is like Ebola and stuff like this. We do all of that in Category 3 labs. So what we need is, so we, there's an airflow here, so you don't need to wear a mask. Airflow here, which is, you know, shutting it all out. You're wearing gloves. You're wearing a standard laboratory, um, you know, gown. And then you wear a sort of sleeve that goes over from the glove to here to make sure nothing gets onto you. But a droplet actually, you know, will be absorbed quite well by, um, you know, a lab coat. And it inactivates the virus more or less straight away by de dehydrating it. We're getting most of our samples as dry swabs rather than wet swabs. The dry swabs also, also more or less kill the virus already. So then the first, we've got a, a dry swab. We stick it straight into this 5-molar guanidinium solution with soap. Virus is dead. Out goes the swab into, you know, a waste bucket, which is full of lethal bleach type stuff. Screw the top on, turn it around and around, wipe it around the outside, hand it to your mate. They wipe it around the outside and then it gets wiped around the outside again further down the line. So, you know, it's dead inside and, you know, it's dead outside. So uh, the minute it comes out of the category three, it can be handled at category one. So all, all that you need to do is, is wear gloves. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. And also that, that they were able to do in, in South Korea, that as well as testing, you then have to do contact tracing and isolating. And it's what you do with the test results, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, so Steve Powis in this um, interview said he doesn't like the term exit strategy. And I actually, I do see where he's coming from on that. Um, and I was about to say this is going to be an important part of the exit strategy. But I, I, I like the way he wanted us to rephrase that. And I think it will become a really important part of managing this um, disease in what you might call a sustainable way or a way that isn't going to completely collapse either the economy or the NHS. Um, because, you know, you can't maintain lockdown measures indefinitely. Everyone knows and accepts this. So it's a question of how you um, most precisely relax those lockdown measures. And of course, if you've got really good information about who's infected and what the symptoms are and the duration in your particular population and what measures have worked where and what kinds of social distancing turned out to be really important in this setting versus that setting, if you've got that data, then you can do that in a kind of more rational way, a way which you're less likely to um, spread the disease and more likely to be able to improve the economy. And of course, the contact tracing um, 
can be done uh, in principle, certainly by you know mobile phone technology. Uh, and, but, and, yeah, and it's there not, are privacy considerations. Well, there are privacy considerations, but on the other hand, um, there's also a massive public health consideration. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one has to set this aside, not to fully, but to, to some extent. So the people who are working on this, I think, are very credible and serious people who've taken the privacy issue very seriously because the, the, the risk issue, it, it, to me, is a, a, I mean, of course, I see it from the point of view of a, of a doctor. Um, the risk is that if you don't put in place robust, um, uh, you know, privacy, then you will lessen the uptake of whichever mobile phone app tracing you eventually go for. If people can be confident that their data is going to be, um, you know, stored securely and isn't going to be shared with people other than public health, um, other than for public health measures, um, then I think people can have confidence that it's in essentially it's it's no different to giving your name and address and you know many other personal details to your doctor, which of course people are happy to do. Um, uh, and and I think I, 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 I'm of course not working on this myself, but I I know some of the people who are, and I'm sure this is very high up in their um, list of considerations. And in terms of other things that can help with uh, not the exit strategy, but with allowing life to continue in the face of COVID-19. There's quite a lot of talk about developing antibody tests as well to see who has had it and may have some immunity to it. And where where are things on that? So it's one of the most curious things about the entire pandemic from start um, to where we are now and possibly until finish is that uh, people are not paying enough attention to the way in which uh, people are acting, by which I mean, by which I mean governments. If it had been tremendously easy to develop a mass-produced antibody test, that would already have been done, and it would already be being used in China and South Korea, for certain. So I think we can be pretty clear that it's not easy to develop an antibody test that will be easily deliverable in a very high-throughput way um, in, in, in a short period of time. What there certainly is, is the ability um, to look for immunity, I say immunity, to look for antibodies which have been raised against the um, uh, SARS-2 um, in a small throughput format in um, you know decent laboratories. And so, again, the government strategy on this strikes me as rational in, in that they, they're testing a number of commercially produced uh, point-of-care antibody tests and um, benchmarking them against, you know, carefully implemented laboratory standard serology tests being done at Port and Down by Public Health England. The the big issue um, that may well be arising, and as I suspect is the reason why none of these tests have yet proven to be effective, is that there will be a degree of cross-reactivity with some of the SARS-2 proteins with um, what we call seasonal coronaviruses. In other words, the viruses that cause essentially common cold-like symptoms that everyone will have had once or twice or perhaps more often in their lifetime and to which they will almost certainly have raised some antibodies. And the problem is if everybody has antibodies to these uh, seasonal coronaviruses and only a small proportion of people have antibodies to SARS-2, then even if you have a sort of 1% cross-reactivity, you'll be reassuring falsely a very large number of people that they're immune when they're not. You know, it will become very important 
at some point um, to know who's been infected. And of course, it would have been very nice if we'd had that information already by having a mass program of um, testing, you know, the, the, the PCR-based test that detects the presence of the virus now. Um, like I was saying, the, the, the difficulty is not in constructing a test that works. The difficulty is in constructing a test that works and can be um, made uh, available on a very, very large scale. But, in but for doctors, for example, if you could have a test to allow doctors to go back to the work, to frontline NHS staff being able to return to work safely. Yes. So, so you could imagine a, a useful setting for the um, very sort of labour intensive, small scale laboratory testing. It would be nice, for example, if you knew, you know, which of your A&E and intensive care staff, for example, um, were uh, likely to be immune. Um, that would that would be helpful information. I suspect we will have a mass market point of care test that does work in the future. My guess is that this will be as a result of people looking at multiple different um, SARS-2 coronavirus proteins and only um, giving you, as it were, the thumbs up, the all clear um, in terms of immunity if you've raised antibodies to all of these different proteins and not just one where you might be unlucky and have a cross-reactive um, antibody test with, with a, a different virus. So uh, I, I suspect we will get there. My guess is that all of the early models will fail, but I could be wrong. You know, the, the NHS is, is, is going to test them. Um, but I would be surprised if we have um, tremendously useful information at a population level um, in the next few weeks. I think it'll be more like more likely months, but who knows? I could be wrong. And a vaccine would take even will take even longer. A, a vaccine for certain will take even longer. Um my naive prediction is that this will be one of the fastest developed vaccines ever in the world when it does come through, because <laughs> it, it may be difficult to develop a vaccine because of the biology of the virus. Um, but on the other hand, it won't be for lack of people trying. And this is one of the very, very few situations where people will be keen to, to go more or less straight to animal, straight from you know, small-scale animal trials to human trials. And there are, I mean, there have been news reports that some have already started. They're already starting I, human that, trials. I believe, that's, I believe that's the case, yes. Um, the huge worry, the, as it were, worst-case scenario, and I, I don't want to um, alarm people too much because I think this is relatively unlikely, the worst thing that could happen is you develop a vaccine that unfortunately makes the, the virus slightly worse. That, that in principle could happen if you're tremendously unlucky um, or if you've, you know, made an error, a, a bad error in the, in the design of the vaccine. And that's I, a reason I, to be careful in vaccine development. Rather it, it's than a, it's really. a reason to be very careful in vaccine development. It has happened in the past for other viruses. And, and this, of course, is why you have to test the, the vaccines carefully before you can recommend them. Um, so impossible to predict exactly when a vaccine will become available in a, on a very large scale. Um, most people would think it will be a year or more. Um, there is a chance, if we're very lucky, that we'll have something which is useful before then. And there's also the question, the other drug angle, as it were, is in terms of therapies to relieve symptoms. And, and Yes. So uh, there are a number of things being tried at the moment. Honestly, I don't hold out a huge amount of hope for most of them. I mean, the one that everyone's been talking about is hydroxychloroquine, um, which, of course, was 
you know, promulgated by what I think most people would regard as a an extremely poorly conducted study in, in France, and then subsequently by uh, Donald Trump. Um, the evidence so far is not in favour of that. Um, there are, you know, professionally designed, you know, much better trials ongoing, including in the, in the UK, that will look at that as a potential um, strategy. But it was developed as a malaria treatment. Yes, it's developed as a malaria tre- treatment, and we use it in the laboratory all the time for all sorts of things. It, it has very interesting properties um, in terms of how it alters cell biology, and it more or less always blocks um, viruses that enter cells in a way that depends on acid because it essentially it's neutralizing acid inside the cells and then if the virus can't get in because there's no acid it can't get in so you can um, you can inhibit replication of the virus now whereas it works for just about every virus in a test tube so far it works for zero viruses that we've ever tested in um, humans so it wouldn't be my, as it were, first sort of port of call if you're looking for a hopeful antiviral treatment. We could be lucky. Maybe it has an effect on this. Um, uh, maybe it does have an effect on this virus. If it does, fantastic. And, you know, it'd be important information to to collect. It's not a particularly toxic drug unless you use it in very high concentrations, um, although it does have potential side effects that people need to be aware of. So it's not a. I wouldn't regard it as a stupid thing to do. It's not a stupid drug to put into a trial, um, but it wouldn't be my sort of m- most favoured hope. From so, from what you've been saying so far, in terms of testing for the virus, testing for possible immunity to the virus, developing therapies, developing vaccines, the scientifically most promising of all of those by some distance is testing for the presence of the virus, and then acting on that well it's the most promising because it's the most proven and it's it's been it's it's extremely reliable at least the molecular biology of it is extremely reliable um it's not to say you can't run into problems um and you know it's been part of the so far very successful south korean strategy um and in south korea they're reliably having you know roughly 100 new cases detected a day and they can be pretty clear it is about 100 new cases because they're testing so much. And they have the testing. Why do they have the testing capacity, which most other countries don't have? Because they thought about it in advance. I mean, it's as simple as that in a way. They had a plan in place already because they had experience of, uh, you know, SARS and MERS, which are related um, viruses. You know, SARS, the first of, the, of these um, to, to be uh, discovered, was particularly devastating within hospitals, um, a very high mortality rate. Um, but fortunately for, for, for everybody, it wasn't particularly transmissible. What we've got with SARS-2 is a virus which has a much lower mortality rate than SARS-1, but is much more transmissible, and that turns out to be much more difficult to deal with. But the Koreans had a very good plan in place to deal with this. And so when they did have their outbreak, um, which was centred on a, you know, a, a large super-spreading event, super-spreading event, as they say, they put in place a very rapid contact and trace programme they had developed and validated their QPCR systems. And um, there was just a lot of hard work and dedication by all the <laughs> uh, laboratory scientists and staff there. And so in a sense, what other countries are doing now is catching up as quickly as possible with That's South right, Korea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, if you, it's the old cliche, the old adage, you know, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. And I'm afraid to say that's the position that a lot of Western democracies have found themselves in. Um, 
I, I, I look back on the article I wrote on, on, on March the 6th when I suggested that most Western democracies would follow the Korean model. Um, I wish that had been the case. I mean, it's clear that many of them didn't or didn't even try until several weeks later when it became obvious that this was the only um, or, or, or that almost whatever your strategy is, um, really large scale, rapid and efficient testing was going to have to be part of it. Um, and it, it's not just in the United Kingdom, but but many other parts of um, the Western world that, you know, these preparations simply were not made in, in an adequate way. Um, but I suppose in a way that's irrelevant. You know, we are where we are and we just have to soldier on as best we can. Um, it, it certainly gives a certain amount of hope that the, the, the sort of model that's in South Korea um, could be to a large extent replicated um, in many Western democracies um, if we can get on top of the first wave of the epidemic and um, if we manage to implement a, a, a carefully thought through testing and tracing strategy. So a strategy advocated by Professor Neil Ferguson um, on the Today programme this morning. And I, and I think I'm very glad that his voice carries a certain amount of weight within um, sort of government thinking on this uh, topic. Um, other strategies are available, but I, I'll recommend Professor Ferguson. All right. Um, and on that recommendation, um, Rupert, thank you very much. Um, I imagine we may well be speaking to you again in a few weeks from now. Um, yes. Um, with, with, uh, uh, <laughs> with luck. Well, not with luck, with um, the immense amount of hard work that everyone's putting in with, um, with better news. That's great. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you. Bye-bye. The new issue of the LRB will be out shortly on our website and other digital channels on Wednesday and reaching subscribers as soon after that as delivery services allow. A couple of pieces from it are already online. Lana Spools on how to set up an ICU and James Butler on the government's response to COVID-19. Other pieces in the issue include Adam Tu's on the consequences of the pandemic for the world economy and Wang Ying's latest report from China. It isn't all coronavirus. There's also Joanna Biggs on Simone de Beauvoir and Jeremy Harding on Extinction Rebellion. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>